The thing that I think surprises people the most is the length of time that it actually takes to recover. It just is is much longer than that six weeks, that eight weeks, that 12 weeks that, that most patients are home or off work um, and just after that kind of expected to jump back into life and work and figuring everything out all at once. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists calls the 12 weeks after giving birth the fourth trimester. For the next few months, the Women's Health Cast will air a fourth trimester series with episodes about physical recovery, postpartum mood changes, breastfeeding, and so much more. On this first episode of our fourth trimester series, Dr. Kim Bannon joined us to talk about physical recovery after giving birth. Dr. Bannon is an obstetrician gynecologist in the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. She talked about common body changes in the postpartum period, what to look out for in terms of mental and emotional health, how to tell when you're ready to resume activities like exercise, and more. From the UW School of Medicine and Public Health Department of OBGYN, I'm Jackie Askins, and you're listening to the Women's Health Cast. I'm so excited to welcome Dr. Kim Bannon to the Women's Health Cast today to talk about postpartum recovery. Thank you for joining me. No problem. Happy to be here. Um, this is a big topic, I feel like. I think there's so many aspects of physical recovery, mental recovery after being pregnant for several months and then giving birth. Um, and I'm really excited to learn a little bit more about it. Before we dive into that, can you tell me a little bit about your practice and why patients come to see you? Absolutely. Um, so I'm an obstetrician gynecologist. I have been in practice since 2015. Um, I'm an Illinois native and recently moved up here to Wisconsin in June and have been enjoying it. Um, as a general obstetrician gynecologist, what that means is that I will see patients for um, routine gynecologic care, but also during their pregnancy for the routine OB care um, and then do deliveries um, in the hospital as well. So today we're here to talk about postpartum recovery. Um, what time period are we talking about exactly in this postpartum stretch? Well, I would say typically the postpartum period is devi- defined as the first six weeks after birth, whether it's a, a vaginal delivery or a cesarean section. But we know that those first six weeks are really just the first six weeks of that kind of early recovery. You know, depending on what source you look at and what you read, there there's some suggestion that that postpartum recovery time should be um, including six months, a year, even two years, because we know that it really does take so long for a patient to recover from the entire 10, 10 months of pregnant, I'm sorry, the entire 40 weeks of pregnancy, um, but also the delivery itself, um, you know, and, and recovery is a loosely defined term because for a lot of patients, their their physical state, their mental state, their lifestyle, nothing's ever going to exactly recover to what it was, but more so getting back to those normal normal activities and things that they would like to be able to do again. I'm so glad you kind of expanded the time frame. That's something I wanted to ask about, like how long does it take to recover? And I feel like recover needs to be in quotes because like it's going to look different for every person. It's never, 
yeah, it's, it's just a little bit different for everybody's experience. Um, is there an average or expected time to feel like, quote, back to normal? Or do we approach that conversation in a way that doesn't allow for the, the variance of people's experience sometimes? I think you're exactly right. We don't approach that conversation to allow for differences in patients' experiences because everyone's birth is going to be so different and everyone's kind of support system afterwards is going to be so different as well to allow for that that rest and that recovery. I would say physically, for the most part, at that six to eight week mark, most patients are able to physically do a lot of the things that they were doing before, such as exercise, such as returning to work, um, but still feeling and um, feeling that those energy levels back and actually being ready to, to return to all normal activities. I mean, that can take just such a vast differing amount of time for, for all patients. Is there a time frame where if some of those like energy levels or physical comfort things haven't, um, I don't want to say bounced back, but haven't improved to the point of like being able to return to kind of normal life or your hopefully regularly scheduled activities. Is there an amount of time after which you would be concerned or you would suggest folks check in with their healthcare provider? That's a great question. So that is one of the reasons why our typical postpartum visits are at that six to eight week mark. A lot of people are like, why, why six weeks? Because it's, you know, it's just such a weird number. But that, that's because at that point, we, we can do a physical exam. We can see if there is a laceration that had sutures, if there's a C-section incision. How is that looking? How is that feeling? Um, and, and how patients are doing. Um, and then based upon that, we can have those further conversations of what, how to ease back into activities, I guess. For our listeners who may be less familiar, the lacerations with sutures that Dr. Bannon mentioned refers to tearing around the vagina that can sometimes happen during birth and that may need to be repaired with stitches. Um, I would say around the three-month mark, though, you know, really most patients physically should be um, feeling almost, I would say, close to back to normal. And if that's not the case, then they really should reach out to their healthcare professional. Now, the flip side of that is the exhaustion and the fatigue and all of that, because um, so many factors play into that. And, um, you know, especially if a parent is, doesn't have a, a large support system, they may be getting up every two hours at night. And that's something that our bodies weren't designed to do. And so that level of Exhaustion just may never get better until that sleep is is corrected. Um, that being said, if the fatigue, the exhaustion is is preventing someone from um, feeling enthusiasm for their regular activities, or is affecting self care, um, or is starting to meld into more of a depression and lack of interest, that's a totally different story. And I think at any point during a recovery, a mom really should reach out. You mentioned lack of interest. And I know that's one of the common like items on sort of a depression um, screening tool. And I guess there's got to be like a lot of 
big emotional changes from the physical process of giving birth and now the, the new process of like taking care of a tiny human and being awake, weird hours and all of the big changes and big challenges that come from that first stretch. How can someone differentiate between like, oh, this is big upheaval. So yes, I feel weird. And like, oh, maybe I could use some mental health support. I guess are there things like a sliding scale of things to kind of look out for that could suggest maybe postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety versus just the life change and the adjustment? Absolutely, there are. Although I totally agree with you, it is a very, um, it's a very gray area, and it gets very difficult to tease that that out. Um, you know, I would say one thing would be sleep. So, for example, if you're not sleeping well because you're getting up and taking care of an infant, that's one thing. But, but if you are given the opportunity to sleep and are unable to sleep because you have racing thoughts or you're worrying about something, um, that could be a sign that perhaps there's something else going on and that's not just a, I'm not sleeping well because I have a baby at home. Um, other things I think I, I hear commonly would be, my significant other is worried about me. Um, and perhaps people outside might recognize, hey, maybe you're not eating um, regularly or maybe those self-care things are not happening or you seem distant or something like that. Um, and so taking, taking those, um, those suggestions can be helpful from family members. Um, and I would say, you know, lack of interest in, in activities and things, you know, that's, that's also a slippery slope because it's hard to be interested in things when you're tired and you're focused other places. But definitely a lack of interest in family and your children themselves could be a sign that that perhaps there's something else going on too. I know later in this series, we will have a deep dive episode with lots of questions about postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety, how to spot it, what happens once you spot it. But I'm glad we could talk about that at least a little bit. On the physical side, on the body side, what are some of the most common body changes or issues that people can encounter as they recover from this like very big momentous kind of occasion that is giving birth? There are so many. Um, I could talk for a very long time about these, but you know, I think the the biggest overarching theme is that um, there's a lot of pressure, outside pressure from society, from famous people of this whole idea of bouncing back right away that People should be able at six weeks to go out in a bikini and return to work and have their hair done and look fantastic like nothing ever happened. But that just totally isn't true. Um, you know, physically, I think first thing is the belly or the abdomen itself. So whether you've you had a cesarean, whether you had a vaginal birth, the abdomen is just generally never the same. So some patients will end up with some extra skin. Some patients will end up with stretch marks. Um, sometimes there's even a diastasis, which is a separation of the rectus muscles within the abdomen. All these things are not things that get better or go away overnight, and sometimes those are remnants that patients have forever. Other things, um, if a mom does have a cesarean birth, the, the constant reminder there of that scar and 
Some patients scar really minimally. Other patients, that scar can, um, you know, other things. Even if if a patient has vaginal versus cesarean, there's a lot of changes in the vulva and the vagina itself. So um, just the changes in, in blood flow, stretching, um, sometimes the labia itself will look different and not ever look exactly the same as before. Um, and, um, you know, I think there's also some other physical changes we might talk about in a little bit, like hair and skin and, um, you know, so many different things. Absolutely. Um, is there a difference in recovery time and recovery experience depending on how someone gives birth in a, like a vaginal birth compared to a cesarean birth? There is, but there isn't at the same time. I think it's the same type of thing is so person to person dependent and situation to situation dependent. I would say generally we know the quicker recovery time, this the safer form of delivery or mode of delivery is a vaginal birth. Um, that being said, not everyone has the um, quick, easy vaginal birth. And um, some patients will have really severe tearing. Some patients will have issues with pelvic organ prolapse, um, urinary incontinence afterwards. Um, and so they may opt for a different type of birth the next time around um, versus a cesarean is a major surgery. Um, generally with more kind of restrictions afterwards to allow that surgical site to heal. But I would say overarching, we still generally say six to eight weeks, either type of birth. I know one thing that a lot of people go home with is some level of postpartum bleeding. And I'm curious uh, how long that experience kind of lasts in general and um, how someone can tell if their bleeding experience is like pretty within the, the standard or the expected amount or if something else is going on for them. So I would say another reason why we typically see patients at six weeks is because most patients have completed their postpartum bleeding or we call it lochia. Um, that's not everyone. Um, generally, cesarean birth patients will stop bleeding a little sooner and may have a little less bleeding. Theoretically, just because we clean out the uterus really well when we deliver that placenta, but they still do have that postpartum bleeding. Um, some patients will stop bleeding as soon as two weeks, some four weeks, but generally that average is six weeks. Things that would not be normal, though, is eight weeks of bleeding generally is hitting almost too long for most patients. So if a patient has continued to bleed and they're at that eight-week mark, I usually tell patients to reach out. Another thing would be very heavy bleeding. The bleeding can increase, decrease, depending on activity levels. Also, if a mom is um, pumping or breastfeeding, that can cause the uterus to contract and can cause heavier bleeding during that time. But overall, once a patient goes home from the hospital, their bleeding really should not be so heavy that they're soaking a pad in an hour or passing clots that are greater than about the size of a quarter uh, to a golf ball size. Okay, so those are things that would suggest time to get in touch with the healthcare provider. This is maybe, could use some help. Absolutely, yes. Are there particular kinds of products, menstrual products, or like other things that you think are helpful for people to have on hand to help them deal with that postpartum bleeding? Absolutely. 
In the hospital, the good news is, is all of that is supplied for you. So we have large amounts of the, the illustrious mesh panties, we call them, um, that are disposable underwear, so you don't have to worry about if you burn them or get blood on them. And we have pads and things. But some patients will prefer to bring their own, and especially once you go home, um, everyone has different preferences. So having a large amount of different levels of pads on hand would be helpful because that blood can really kind of quickly taper down, and you don't want to be stuck using the big pads when you don't need them. Um, for cesarean birth moms, having high-waisted underwear can be really nice because digging into that incision with a lower-waisted bikini can be kind of uncomfortable. So high-waisted is key. Um, what's been really popular right now is using almost like a, a Depends or a disposable underwear. So they make um, kind of thinner, newer ones. And so some moms will bring those to the hospital and use those instead of the hospital-supplied ones. Or finally, there are absorbent underwear that are um, washable, which are really nice as that flow decreases. A lot of moms may have issues with um, recurrent kind of yeast infections or um, irritation with wearing those pads for potentially six weeks. So using something like the Thinks or another brand of disposable underwear can be a really nice alternative. Generally, though, we don't recommend anything inserted in the vagina for about the six weeks. So generally no tampons or um, menstrual cups or things like that. Okay. That was going to be my question. I haven't heard you mention those. Is there a reason? So what about uh, perineal pain? So pain around the vagina, like after giving birth, um, how long should someone expect some discomfort or tenderness kind of in that area? That can really depend on the degree of tearing that a mom has. Um, some moms, if that tearing isn't severe, their pain discomfort might only last a week or so. Um, and especially if, if no sutures are needed, um, they may really not need any pain medication. However, I would say majority of first-time moms do have some sort of tear, no matter what they do, no matter stretching, preparation, it's just that that space has not been stretched like that before. Um, so most of those tears require sutures. Most of those sutures will take about six, four to six weeks to dissolve. The perineal pain, by the time a patient gets to six weeks, I would say generally is not impacting their life, meaning that they're not typically taking any medication anymore for it. Um, generally, Pain can be controlled with alternating over-the-counter things, Tylenol, ibuprofen, ice packs, witch hazel. Sometimes for the more severe pain or severe lacerations, though, stronger narcotic pain medication can be needed. But I think that perineal pain, if you're not doing anything with the perineum, you may not notice that you have pain. But I think a lot of times when this comes up is when patients after those six weeks, are trying to resume more of their quote-unquote normal activities like exercise, like riding a bike, or reinitiating intercourse. Um, and I think that's when we kind of realize whether someone has quote-unquote fully healed or, or not. I wanted to ask some questions about resuming normal activities since you kind of started mentioning that. Um, what... I guess, what are the recommendations? When is it safe 
and recommended to kind of resume things like an, an exercise routine that you might have participated in before pregnancy or before birth? So I would say that really, we'll try to separate out maybe, separate out first vaginal birth versus a cesarean birth. For a vaginal birth, we don't put lifting restrictions on a patient. Um, if they do have a laceration that requires sutures, we do generally say for strenuous exercise waiting those six weeks. But sometimes you'll have a patient who had a very uncomplicated delivery, required no sutures, and may want to resume exercise sooner than that. Um, so it really does kind of depend on what that exercise level is. Walking is always a good thing, um, and walking at any point, even walking home after you <laughs> delivered is a great thing. But easing back into those weight-bearing exercises, that's the part that you really have to kind of listen to your body. Um, I would say overarching, that's still six weeks, but there are some patients who probably could resume those things sooner. For cesarean delivery, we really don't want more strenuous activity than walking for those six weeks. And the reason is, is because those layers, not even the skin layer, but those layers on the inside take that long to heal. And so doing exercise and weight-bearing exercises and putting pressure on those layers could put a patient at a higher risk of wound separation, breakdown, or potentially even a hernia down the road. So um, for cesarean, we do usually really try to push that that six weeks Again, encouraging walking because walking is still still an excellent recovery option. I know it's such a common surgery, but it's still major abdominal surgery. So absolutely, I understand those restrictions. They're really there for a big reason. Um, people might also around that time be thinking about, as you also mentioned, resuming sexual activity. And are there recommendations or guidelines for that as well? We usually suggest waiting to resume sexual activity until after that postpartum visit for a few reasons. First thing, we want to make sure that everything is healed before resuming intercourse. Second thing, we also want to make sure that a patient has adequate contraception before resuming intercourse. And while we try to make sure that we have that contraceptive plan before discharge from the hospital, in some patients it's not actually initiated until that six-week visit. Um, some patients, when they come to that six-week visit, are ready to resume intercourse and are very excited about it and, um, and go for it after that. I would say other patients are in the absolute other category, meaning they're tired, they're stressed, they're still sore, and that is absolutely the last thing on their list. So I think it's a fine line of saying, yes, you're recovered to resume intercourse versus are you mentally ready and interested in resuming intercourse and reassuring patients that it is very normal to have that kind of be a lower priority on their list than perhaps it was before. If it is a priority, someone feels physically, mentally ready, is interested in resuming sexual intercourse, are there changes they should be like aware of I can imagine this is a, a big body event might not be exactly the same as it was before um, considerations like you know do you have lubricant around are there things to think about to try to make that reinitiation of sex as enjoyable as they might want it to be 
Absolutely. I think talking with your partner ahead of time could be really key in just making sure that your partner understands that you did go through a major event and that having some flexibility may be important. Another thing that's really common is if a patient is lactating, whether it's pumping or breastfeeding, estrogen levels generally are pretty low. And what that means for the vagina is that it can be very dry, it can be sensitive, and add that to someone who maybe had a tear during delivery, that combination of things does not necessarily make sex enjoyable. Having lubricant on hand can be very helpful for that. And generally, I recommend that for all of my, especially my first-time moms who are thinking about resuming intercourse just in case. Um, if if lubricant's not even enough, some moms who are lactating who have those lower estrogen levels, it can be really helpful to give them some topical estrogen that is safe with lactation. Um, and that can really help restore some of that normal hormone supply to that tissue and just help make things a little bit more enjoyable. You mentioned um, you mentioned breastfeeding, and that kind of reminded me to ask about like nutrition and hydration in the postpartum period for um, maybe for anyone, whether they're um, breastfeeding, chest feeding or not, uh, what should they be keeping in mind as far as like diet choices, how much water to be drinking, and then like are there extra considerations if, if someone is breastfeeding to like keep their body healthy and nourished for what they needed to do? Yes. I feel like, I've said this so many times, but this can vary so much from person to person. Um, the biggest thing with lactation really is hydration. Um, because your body, if your body's dehydrated, it's not going to then let extra fluid out of the breasts. So some patients for proper hydration, it's just that 64 fluid ounces of water a day. But other patients... It really needs to be more than that, and so and most patients, I would say, with lactation need more than that as well. Um, and generally, those fluids, water would be the best thing, not filling it up with other things like, you know, soda and juices and that kind of stuff. Um, having just a well-balanced diet is really important, which we say that during pregnancy, but also just really important postpartum. Having those fruits, veggies, but also protein, because you have a new baby at home you're probably not going to have a ton of time to eat. Um, and so having that protein will help keep those sugar levels kind of stable throughout and hopefully help you to feel less hungry if, if it is a few hours before you're able to eat. Um, after delivery also, we just talked about all moms bleed for about six weeks or so. Um, so having foods that are rich in iron and also vitamin C help to boost up that blood count. And we know the better the blood count is, the more... Um, lactation can go well because same type of thought with dehydration. If there's not a ton of extra blood floating around, your body's going to say, you know what, I need to save all my fluid for inside of my body and it can affect that milk supply. We also generally recommend for a mom who's lactating, continuing a prenatal vitamin or multivitamin during the time that they're, that they're lactating. Just because we know that Keeping up in some of those nutrients in a well-balanced diet can be really hard when you're also trying to care for other people. Dinner might be the granola bar that you could eat while you were one-handed breastfeeding. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. 
Another common experience that I've heard about is postpartum hair loss. And I'm just so curious about really every part of it. How much hair do people generally lose in this like postpartum time? Is it normal? Should should you freak out if a giant hank of hair comes out when you're brushing? Like, This is a hard one, too, um, because a lot can... So first of all, we don't entirely understand why this happens. We know that even if it's not childbirth, any sort of big life event or big illness can result in a large amount of hair loss afterwards. There's also been some that some recent studies that have even tied like a COVID infection with uh, subsequent hair loss after that. So, so we don't know why this happens, um, but. If a mom ends up gaining a lot of hair during pregnancy, I would say those are the moms I tend to see who have this a little worse. Um, it can start right away, but I would say generally it doesn't start right away. Average seems to be three to six months, but again, there's not a lot of data out there about this. Usually, though, if it is going to happen, it it happens over the course of those three to six months and should be done by a year. And after that, the hair should start rebuilding. That being said, it's really hard to say how much hair is too much hair. So a clump of hair could be okay, but if it is repetitive clumps of hair with noticing you know, thinner kind of bald spots there, that would definitely not be normal. And I think it also has to depend too on how much hair a person has to start with because even a small amount of hair with someone who has thin hair to start with could be really distressing. So some things that we suggest would be if they're not already taking a prenatal vitamin, taking a prenatal vitamin. Um, Sometimes adding in a hair, skin, and nails um, vitamin can be helpful too. If it does seem like it's too much, checking some, some labs can be helpful because sometimes undiagnosed thyroid abnormalities can cause this. Um, low iron levels can cause this, low vitamin D potentially. Um, but if we don't identify anything there, then it may even be time to refer off to a dermatologist. In your experience, what seems to surprise people the most about the postpartum recovery process in this stretch of time? The thing that I think surprises people the most is the length of time that it actually takes to recover. Um, You know, I know we touched on this a little bit, but, um, you know, I think that it just is is much longer than that six weeks, that eight weeks, that 12 weeks that that most patients are home or off work. Um, And just after that kind of expected to jump back into life and work and figuring everything out all at once. Um, so I think just the reassurance that it's okay to not totally have every little piece of the puzzle figured out when that time comes and, you know, eventually it'll get figured out. With so many changes happening all at once, I think it could be tough to parse out, like, what's a normal side effect of not sleeping, caring for a newborn, recovering from this big body change, and what is concerning or what 
would require help. And it's so also so hard to just ask for help and like put yourself first in this time when you're trying to keep a brand new baby alive. But are there symptoms or things that people might experience that are concerning that should raise a red flag and encourage them like, oh, I should probably send a message to my doctor just to see what's going on. What kinds of things should we be on the lookout for? Absolutely. And you hit it there. If if there's ever something that someone is not sure is normal or not, sending a message is so easy these days on my chart. So just do it or even give the office a call. Um, you know, I think so many of these things that happen in, in the time after a delivery, no one talks about. And it's only when you ask someone else, oh, hey, did you experience that, that you actually find out, oh, yeah, this is this is maybe more common than we think. Um, but I would say, going back to that heavy bleeding, so any sort of bleeding outside of that six- to eight-week mark, heavy bleeding, soaking a pad over an hour, passing big clots, um, fevers postpartum can be very common, and there's so many reasons why fevers can happen, um, including an infection in the uterus. Mastitis is a common one, or maybe it's unrelated, but generally a fever or temp over 100.5 we'd want to know about. Mastitis, which Dr. Bannon just mentioned, is a fairly common infection or inflammation in the breast, which sometimes happens after pregnancy or while breastfeeding. Um, any sort of... Uh, Concerns with a incision or a tear, meaning discharge it from there. If there's something that's more painful than it was before, um, and then finally, mood would be you know if if there's issues with sleep, if there are any sort of intrusive thoughts, if there's lack of lack of interest, if there's um, severe anxiety that that is really preventing you from enjoying the new your new baby from you getting outside and going and doing kind of more usual activities um you know and and I think biggest thing would be any thoughts of of hurting yourself hurting anyone else that is not a my chart message that is please call us any time of the day 24 hours a day seven days a week um so we can get patient connected and that's outside of that six weeks I mean anytime that's the case we can we can help also, we've done a couple podcasts about high blood pressure. And Absolutely. so knowing that preeclampsia can happen through maybe like the six-week postpartum period. So nausea, swelling in the hands or face, severe headache, vision changes. Those are also could be um, blood pressure problem issues that are definitely worth following up on very quickly, I think. You are exactly right. And blood pressure issues can be something that a patient never had an issue with during the entire pregnancy, the delivery, after delivery, and they can just pop up. So um, all of those things you mentioned, give us a call. Um, I'm happy to see patients for blood pressure checks. Some patients will have their own blood pressure cuff at home. Um, generally, we're looking for the 140 number on the top or systolic and the 90 on the bottom, which is that diastolic number. Those numbers we generally think of as too high. Definitely, if we um, see those with any of those symptoms you mentioned, then we really need to, to evaluate the patient. Um, you're right, though. Those first six weeks act afterwards, that's when patients are at the highest risk of developing preeclampsia or what we call gestational hypertension or high blood pressure of pregnancy. 
Dr. Bannon, thank you so much for joining us on the Women's Health Cast. I learned a ton. I'm really grateful for your time. No problem. Thanks so much. The Women's Health Cast is a production of the UW School of Medicine and Public Health Department of OBGYN. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. Communications intern Paige Stevenson supported this episode's research and transcription. You can listen to the Women's Health Cast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find the UW Department of OBGYN on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the handle at WISCOBGYN. Let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us in your podcast app and let us know what fourth trimester health issues you'd like to learn about at the link in our episode description. Thanks for listening.